The UDR cast is not affiliated and does not represent any 12-step fellowship. I, Bill Ward, the host of the UDR cast, will be sharing my experience and my journey of recovery. That does include, but is not limited to, the literature contained in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. Our guests will be sharing their own path to recovery and what has worked for them. The UDR cast encourages and supports all paths to recovery. Welcome everybody to the UDR cast. UDR stands for Uncover, Discover and Recover. My name is Bill Ward and I'm coming to you from the recovery capital of Canada, Calgary, Alberta. Here we are going to discuss everything recovery, different perspectives, different experiences, both with the people I know and with others from around the world. If you resonate with anything you've heard on this episode today, we ask that you share it with anyone who you think may benefit from it. If you have any questions or comments, please find us at billward.life and send us a message in the info section. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you are interested in more recovery content, you can find the buttons for the YouTube channel and other social media outlets on the homepage, and you will be redirected to those platforms. We can recover. One person, one family, one community at a time. So we're going to be in the 12 and 12, page 88. So just to touch base before we rock and roll, for anyone that wasn't here, we did step 10 out of the big book last week, which is your directions, which is actually your clear-cut directions of... uh, how to stay in alignment and stay present and step 10 in the big book has like very clear cut directions, right? It's not a theory. There's, there's real practical mechanical application there. So if you don't know what that is and you're wondering, cause you missed the first session, you know, reach out to us and we'll get you a copy of the last session or we'll talk to you on the phone and help you understand that part. So what we're doing today is going into the 12 and 12 because the 12 and 12 really enhances what step 10 in the big book is, right? In the big book, it talks about like a spot check inventory. It's mostly about a spot check inventory, but there's other inventories, right? There's, as we'll describe in here, um, you know, as self is the problem, this step 10 in the 12 and 12 kind of talks about certain aspects of what we got to watch out for, you know, i.e. big shotism, i.e., you know, restraint of pen and tongue. And then it goes on to some other things, you know, talks about the spiritual axiom. So the step 10 in the 12 and 12 is just like a deeper understanding of kind of what the 10 is in the big book. So by no means is that actual directions, but it definitely gives you a lot of added value. Anything else? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Okay, step 10, continue to take parcel inventory. When we were wrong, promptly admitted it, page 88. As we work the first nine steps, we prepare ourselves for the adventure of a new life. 
But when we approach step 10, we commence to put our AA way of living to practical use day by day in fair weather or foul. Then comes the acid test. Can we stay sober, keep an emotional balance, live to good purpose under all conditions? A continuous look at our assets and liabilities and a real desire to learn and grow by this means are necessities for us. We alcoholics have learned this the hard way. More experienced people, of course, in all times and places have practiced unsparing self-survey and criticism. For the wise have always known that no one can make much, much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit, till he's able to admit and accept what he finds and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. When a drunk has a terrific hangover because he drank heavily yesterday, he cannot live well today. But there's another kind of hangover which we all experience whether we are drinking or not. That is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday's and sometimes today's accesses of negative emotion, anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. If we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate these hangovers. This doesn't mean we need to wander morbidly around in the past. It requires an admission and correction of errors now. Our inventory enables us to settle with the past. When this is done, we are really able to leave it behind us. When our inventory is carefully taken, we have made peace with ourselves. The conviction follows that tomorrow's challenges can be met as they come. Okay. So step 10, continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. Just for anyone that's new, like, you know, that's what it says on the wall in the rooms, but that's not what step 10 is, right? That's like a snippet of actually what it is. And when you understand the literature, yeah, it is about taking personal inventory. And it is kind of about admitting that you're wrong, but it doesn't say that we admit that we're wrong when we harm somebody and go directly out and make the amend. That's not what it is. That's the misconstrued version of what people think it is. <clears throat> And the other thing about step 10 in the rooms <clears throat> is it's the most misconstrued step out of all the steps and people deliver a message on this step that is actually totally wrong and it actually hurts people from their recovery. It actually hurts people from getting a closer relationship with God. And so our job, I think, is to really try to clarify what step 10 really is. And it says, as we work the first nine steps, so I've worked the first nine steps. I've, I've made five or eight or 10 amends. I've gained traction in the amends. And then I've went through the big book and I've done the step 10 with my sponsor. And this is kind of saying that, right? Now we're prepared, prepared ourselves for the adventure of a new life. In the step three, where it talks about being reborn, you know, this is kind of what it's talking about. We're, we're going to change and we're going to keep changing. And this is a new way of living. We don't get the old life. We start living a new life. Um, but when we approach step 10, we commence to put our AA way of living to practical use. And that's really important because in the step 10 mechanical process in the big book, I'm putting it to practical use. I'm practically applying exactly what it says in that book in a mechanical fashion. And I get results from it. The thing is, is I don't always get the results that I want. And that's fine. You know, you got to understand that you're not always going to get the results that you want when you're working this program. It's about following the processes and doing it anyway. Um, then comes the acid test. So here's the acid test. 
Can I stay sober, number one? Can I keep an emotional balance, number two, and live to good purpose under all conditions? In fair weather or foul, doesn't matter if it's good or if it's bad, am I able to stay sober, keep an emotional balance, and live to good purpose? And I do have the recipe for that once I get to this point in the, in the game. I have the fucking tools. I have the guidance. I have the understanding. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him, from God, who has all knowledge and power. And part of that direction is what have I learned in the big book up to that page 84 so far, 85, because it's there. And really, the emotional balance is really the most important here. Because if I stay in emotional balance, I will stay sober. I will stay sober because it's the emotional out of balance, the unmanageability of living in self that actually is what produces me to succumb to the desire again. When I live in self, when I live in the emotional instability, I actually don't have a power of choice I fucking pick up again. So this step 10 is actually there in the clear-cut directions of page 84 in the big book to keep me in emotional balance. And by following that process, I will pretty much stay there. It's, it's hard to do at first. Like step 10, really step 10 takes a lot of practice, right? And that's the thing. A lot of people get frustrated with the way of this change and the psychic change and trying to live a new life because it's hard at first. But that's why we got to stay consistent. We got to fucking dig in with both fucking dig our heels in and really fucking try this shit because it's really easy to go back to what we've always done. And if we go back to what we've always done, we make our lives fucking hard. So we can't do what's easy and make our lives hard anymore. We got to do what's hard. We got to persevere. We got to ask God for help in those areas where we're struggling, where self is trying to fucking run the show. And as we do this over time, our lives get easier. And we can kind of start understanding in the book where it said, you know, in Fred's story, where he soon realized that spiritual principles would solve all of his problems through the process, the practical application of that 10. The results are spiritual principles. And then I begin to be able to solve most of my problems, all of my problems with these principles with God and through the application of what it says on page 84 in the big book. So, again, a continuous look at our assets and liabilities. Continuous look at what am I thinking and what am I feeling, what's working, what's not. And talking to my sponsor and doing these inventories is really important. I'm going to skip down a couple lines. More, exper more experienced people, of course, in all times and places have practiced unsparing self-survey and criticism. For the wise have always known that no one can make much good of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit. Until he is able to admit and accept what he finds. Until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. And for me, that's like so true. Like, I remember in my first couple years of recovery, I didn't understand the program really. I just thought it was about not drinking. And as I'm burning down my life at about a year and a half sober with these defects of character, I started going, what the fuck is happening right now? Right. And 
and me and Jesse both, you know, we're kind of riding this road together. And luckily the pair of us, you know, put each brain cell we had left together and fucking miraculously came up with an idea that we would get into this 12 and 12. And we started looking at the defects of character. So what we were doing is we were doing an unsparing self-survey. We started looking at that step six, not as just a reading, but how does that step six apply in our lives? And I remember one of the very first things, there's three things that really stick out when we sat in the work truck and we, we were supposed to be working, but we sat in this truck and we read this material for like hours and hours because we weren't well emotionally. We were not in emotional balance. We were sober. And sometimes I look back and go how, but we were, but we were not sober emotionally. We were drunk on defects of character, but we knew there was a solution here. And there's three things that really stick out to me. One was when we read the line in step six, where it talks about who doesn't like to be a little superior to their fellows or how about a whole lot superior. And I started thinking about that in my life in that moment. In all aspects of my life, when I was uh, a hockey player, when I was a young kid and I was a hockey player, all my 12 years of playing hockey, how I like to be superior, how I like to be superior at school and on the playground. And, and then all through my life, I really had that, that trait or that character defect that actually what we'll talk about today called big shotism and big shotism caused me a lot of fucking pain. And then the other one was gossip barbed with our anger, you know, talking about other people. Um, here, we're not trying to help those we're criticizing. We're trying to claim our own rightness. I'm trying to put myself above somebody when I'm talking shit about somebody. And our society does that at large, and it's very accepted. But it's a part of the soul sickness. It's part of the spiritual sickness. And we perpetuate that with no fucking, without a blink of an eye in this society. But as we start looking at ourselves in these deep, honest ways and principle and moral ways, we start seeing that these things actually don't serve any part of us. And then there was the line in that 12 and 12 step six, where it talked about uh, lust, hiding lust in the dark corner of our minds while living within conventional bounds and believing what we say with our lips, but still hiding that in the dark corner of our minds. That just boom, that just rung to me all of that shit. And I started really dissecting it. And that was like the real, real beginning, I think, of the, the deep and honest search of my motives and actions. And because I wanted to change and I didn't want to drink anymore and I wanted to be a better father and a better ex-husband and a better friend, Jesse and I started peeling that fucking material apart. And one of the other chapters we went to shortly after that was this one. And where it talks about in here, restraint of pen and tongue you know in the pen in the big book it talks about love and tolerance of others is their code well that wasn't my code when i was first doing this shit restraint of pen and tongue was my code it wasn't because i loved anybody it was just because this book told me to fucking keep my trap shut so that i didn't fucking make stuff worse and when i'm doing that in the early recovery all i'm doing is resisting I'm just like biting my tongue, but underneath the surface, I'm still not well, but at least I didn't make it worse. And I guess my point is sometimes that's just the beginning point. We just can't make it worse. 
And as we work this program more and more, and you see the benefits out of humility, because when I would bite my tongue, my brain saying, no, this guy's really got to hear what you got to say. But the book told me to bite my tongue and not respond with anything. And even though my ego wanted to, after time, I was like, holy shit, I didn't make it worse. And I didn't get myself drawn into other people's bullshit. And there was some value in that, although I didn't understand it yet. But over time, over time, it, it became more and more apparent of how valuable these directions in these books were. So for the wise have always known that no one can make much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit. That's a regular habit in my life today. It's my subtle subconscious ego tries to direct me away from that still sometimes, but I've combated it so well over the years that I've gotten much better at it. Like Jesse talked about last week, when he comes and tells me something about his life, he's pretty aware that his ego can fucking only tell him what he wants to hear. And what I'm going to hear is going to validate whatever his ego wants to hear, but he's learned through the pain that that's not going to serve him anyway. So what he ends up doing is he tells me everything, leaves the chips on the table for God and me to fucking look at. And whatever the results are, whatever he needs to hear, he's got to hear, whether that be good or bad to him. But the results out of that help him grow and help me grow, right? And until he is able to admit and accept, that's important, how he writes admits and accepts. Because you can admit something. It's just like step one with the alcohol. You can admit you're alcoholic, but that acceptance at a deep concession is what we need. When the gates of hell close on you with a clang, that's when recovery starts from the substance. But when did recovery start for me with like anger? When I accepted at a deep level, I admitted to my innermost self that this anger had me and I didn't know what to do. I conceded to my innermost self, I was screwed with this anger. And I became super willing to relinquish it. And did it happen right away? No. But was I willing? Did I try to be honest? Yeah. And through time and through the willingness and honesty to try repeatedly step six on all my faults without reservation, I indeed had grown a long way spiritually. And through the relinquishment of anger and lust and a lot of these other defects, I have gotten closer to God. Because when you seek God, when you draw near to him, he discloses himself to you. So drawing near to God is basically going inside myself and getting rid of some of these defects with the help of God. Because I couldn't change this shit myself. I tried, right? So I got to I gotta look at myself sometimes in a way that really is painful to the ego and go, okay, yeah, I admit it. And especially as you stay sober longer, you get kind of like the spiritual pride where you shouldn't have these defects anymore. Or you shouldn't act like that anymore because you put on this show for people in recovery. And if, and if these people knew that you were still acting like this at three or four years sober, you'd feel humiliated. Well, that's part of the humility we need. So it's really important even as we go in recovery to admit these things and to be able to have people we can talk to and fucking know that I have to get this shit out. And I, I have to be rigorously honest with myself and with others. And that accurate honesty, that rigorous honesty is, is the key to what it says here, accepting what he finds. 
you know, I did a post on uh, Facebook the other day and it talks about, uh, you know, self-worth. And I wrote on this post that most people, they believe they have good self-worth, but really what I've discovered through sponsorship is most people have an issue with self-worth. Until you stay sober and you get down to more depths, you won't really see it, right? Most people are saying, well, I got great self-worth. I got great self-confidence, but it's always based in what people think of you, what you have, how much money you have, all this kind of shit. Usually down the road, when you get down to the deeper layers of, you know, self, you start seeing that, you know, most of us have some type of an issue with that. And that stuff comes out and there's a lot of healing in there. There's a lot of acceptance of who you actually are in those deeper levels, which only come through time, right? And you can start building these patterns only through staying sober, though. And part of that staying sober is keeping an emotional balance and understanding what this step actually is. Because once you understand what step 10 actually is, you can use step 11 as a pure power step and gain a lot of power through the prayer and meditation. When we do step 11, Jesse really dissected the big book, step 11, in a way that's deadly and shows the exact directions in there of meditation or prayer. Because there's a lot of fluff in step 11 in the 12 in the big book. It's a really good 86 to 88 is great. But when you really dissect that literature, there's only a few pieces of actual clear cut direction in that step. And Jesse did a great job uh, dissecting that a few years ago. And uh, so now I use that too, right? And that's the benefit of both of us working together. We can both see different things as we go here. Anyway, so I'll just quickly touch on uh, the emotional hangover. You know, how many people do I meet in new recovery that actually act out in self and don't really understand because they're driven by the intention of the, they're doing the right thing based on intention, but underneath that intention, their, their motives were still selfish or self-seeking or self-centered fear. And then they acted in that. And then they get that feeling of the emotional hangover where something isn't right. And that's really common in early sobriety. And it's really common because it's not about your best of intention. The step 10 process on page 84 in the big book actually exposes motive. And it's the motive that's most important because you can blind yourself with the best of intention. And if you blind yourself with the best of intention, you actually are still living in self and you will fucking, you know, be at risk of drinking, even though your ego thinks you're connected to God. So I think part of our job, again, is to really expose what self is and be able to step away from self so that we don't get into these uh, foolish, perhaps tragic blunders by making these decisions with the best of intention. And through the process of step 10, again, there's a lot of, the results are not always what you want, but it doesn't matter. You follow the process regardless and you can't connect the dots in your life now or in the future, you connect the dots later when you look back and you'll be like, wow, okay, I'm really glad that I did those hard things because now my life is easier today. Oh, yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, the emotional hangover. That is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday's and sometimes today's accesses of negative emotion, anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. 
if we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate these hangovers. So, I mean, most people, you know, mo most alcoholics that come here and, you know, just general people, um, in between the drink and the drug, in between whatever relief they're getting in life, uh, is the emotional hangover in between that relief and the alcoholic, the drink, and the drug gambling, whatever the case may be, they're dealing with the emotional hangover. Majority of it's resentment and fear, right? Could be resentments for decades past, you know, and then fear tomorrow, right? These types of things. And they wake up, you know, like me and um, me and Bill, were, when we were chatting about the, the four and the five, you know, we really highlighted fear being you know, the, the real killer of the alcoholic, just because self-centered fear can manifest so easily. You know, I don't need another person. Another person does not need to be involved. Uh, just my feet have to hit the floor and I have to be awake, you know, and I could manifest some real, you know, heavy five-star fear, you know, and uh, I go to bed like that and I wake up like that. I do not, you know, I... When I'm hammered, I'm blacked out, I pass out, you know, uh, I get the spins, whatever the case may be, you know, I might wake up sober. When it comes to the emotions, you know, I can wake up worse. Um, for years of my recovery, I woke up full-blown alcoholic. That is restless, irritable, discontent. And then if I'm dealing with these emotional hangovers, I'm dealing with alcoholism, then I'm dealing with deep-rooted fear or resentment. And the only way we can get around that is through the inventory. You know, once I do an inventory in the five, I'm no longer dominated by a lot of the things I just mentioned, right? By this self-centered fear. For the first time in my life, my first five is when I was actually fully present in the, in the weeks that followed, right? But then all of a sudden life comes back, you know? And from the six all the way up into the 10, I again have nothing to you know, clear that channel. And that's where 10 comes in, you know, 10 gives me the ability to clear the channel right here and right now. And so they say it requires, this is the top 89, it requires an admission and correction of errors now in italics. Our inventory enables us to settle with the past. When this is done, we're really able, able to leave it behind us. You know, so the whole point of that, this, this, uh, spot check inventory as Bill talks about that is what step 10 is step 10 is the greatest spot check check inventory you'll ever be given um, at least in my case that's very apparent and I'm able to rectify things right then and there and I'm able to shut it the fuck down and it's not always that easy right because at first it has to be spotted Right. And so that can be extremely fucking tricky. Like even today, I've been dealing with this account. And generally, if I deal with a lot of roadblocks, I can always deal with circumstantial roadblocks. And don't get me wrong, that does happen, especially trying to do business, um, you know, during a fucking pandemic. There's a ton of roadblocks. But more often than not, if there's more roadblocks than there should be, and I start getting fucking confused, the odds are it's self. Self is fucking somewhere, no doubt. And um, I find myself, you know, getting really caught up with this account. And, and you know, I had tried to uh, make things calm. And I, I, you know, guaranteed I probably made things worse or else, or else I feel that way. Probably one of the biggest step 10 practices I've used, and this is going back maybe five years now, 
is when I really get wrapped up in self, like the more time I spend on me, the more wrapped up I get and in turn, the more desperate I will get. Um, you know, like the feeling like, like my life is coming down and crumbling around my feet does still happen. And it only happens when I'm, my thoughts are dominated on self, right? Or if I'm really caught up and I'm more emotionally invested in something than I actually should be. And the biggest practice I have out of step 10, and this has taken years to develop, but it is what saved my life. And step 10 is the biggest thing that has enabled me to stay sober and sane at the same time. And uh, what I'll do and what I've done half this day is I've hidden from life and life. So I have the ability to, you know, unplug from work and just get into driving my car for an example, right? Where my only objective is to enjoy the ride and try and be as safe as possible, right? Then I get home and then I unplug from driving and, you know, I get into whatever task I'm doing at the house. You know, whether that be vacuuming, whether that be whatever, trying to do something for the house, household, or for my spouse, right? When I'm driving, I'm trying to enjoy it, but I am trying to be safe on the road, which is the connection to others. And so in the household, it is trying to do some of these things to make my, um, to make my spouse's life easier, right? So the connection of trying to get out of myself, like the example I always use, and probably the best example I have is like, you know, I'll, I'll get out of the office, for example, just to fucking unplug for a second. This is what meditation allows me to do. I don't want to get into that because fuck, we'll spend enough time on it. God knows that. But, uh, you know, I unplug, I get out of it and, you know, I'll, I'll go make a coffee and, and all I have to do is stir that coffee, right? And so what I'm telling you is, is fucking impossible. You have to be present before that. Without the presence, everything I just told you, you try and practice that, it will not work. And it does not work for me. I have to fucking get present right here, right now. Only then can I meditate. Only then can I practice what I'm talking about. And when I stir that coffee, the only thing I have to do is be nice to that cashier. Right? And I try and when, when I get out of life, there has to be, I have to incorporate other people and I have to incorporate, um, um, you know, having, having my thoughts consistently being of others and being a service to others. This is like when, when we went into the uh, disciplines in step 10, there was a second component there, which almost never gets talked about. So when Bill says that this step is wildly confused, it is, of course, very rarely do you hear about inventory. Right. And that's actually that's the step. Right. The, this step is inventory. The back burner um, thing in the process is to make amends. But you only make amends when you talk to a God centered member. Right. So that's that. Now, what you do with the presence is you try and carry the vision of God's will into all your activities. And so you're trying to serve other people. So when I stir that coffee or I try and get involved in the ride or I try and get involved in the household, there has to be the component of other people. That is how I carry the vision of God's will into all of my activities. How can I best serve the not, not, not mine be done? That's how it's balanced properly, right? Because if I just try and get involved in me more, it will emphatically get worse. 
right? And so what I'm talking about, like from a scale of like sober and serene to completely drunk, I will probably run a quarter into there. It is, it is guaranteed that if I let this go on for so long, eventually I will fucking drink. That is a guarantee. Naturally, though, I mean, you know, you're going to be in like, I mean, when, you, when you're first sober, I mean, you'll probably be running right in the fucking red all the time. <laughs> you know, at least, I, at least I, looking back, I probably was. Today, I'm right here. But why I'm right here is because I've been doing this for, for a number of years. And I've gotten enough fucking pain over here that over time I've been able to do this. And it's not really because, uh, you know, I'm godly or anything like that. It's just my, my threshold for pain is limited now. I just can't fucking handle it. I can't handle decisions based on self. I can't handle the repercussions of self in my life, you know? And so this is why I want to operate here all the fucking and uh, I think with saying that, I think that's fucking good because I don't want this to drag on too, too long. We would have cap this off in a half decent time. Okay, 89. Although all inventories are alike in principle, the time factor does distinguish one from another. There's the spot chick inventory taking at any time of the day whenever we find ourselves getting tangled up. There's the one we take at day's end when we review the happenings of the hours just passed. Here we cast up a balance sheet crediting ourselves with things well done and chalking up debts where due. Then there are those occasions when alone or in the company of our sponsor or spiritual advisor, we make a careful review of the progress since the last time. Many AAs go in for an annual or semi-annual house cleaning. Many of us also like the experience of an occasional retreat from the outside world where we could quiet down for an undisturbed day or so of self-overhaul and meditation. Aren't these practices joy killers as well as time consumers? Must AA spend most of their waking hours dreadly rehashing their sins of omission or commission? Well, hardly. The emphasis on inventory is heavy only because a great many of us have never really acquired the habit of accurate self-appraisal. Once this healthy practice has become grooved, it'll be so interesting and profitable that the time it takes won't be missed. For these these minutes and sometimes hours spent in self-examination are bound to make the other hours of our day better and happier. And at length, our inventories become a regular part of everyday living rather than something unusual or set apart. Before we ask what a spot check inventory is, let's look at the kind of setting in which such an inventory can do its work. It is a spiritual, it is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. If somebody has hurt us and we are sore, are we in the wrong also? But are there no exceptions to this rule? What about justifiable anger? If somebody cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? Can we be properly angry with self-righteous folk? For us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. Few people have been more victimized by resentments than have we alcoholics. It mattered little whether our resentments were justified or not. A burst of temper can spoil a day and a wellness grudge can make us miserably ineffective. Nor were we ever skillful in separating justified from unjustified anger. As we saw it, our wrath was always justified. Anger, that occasional luxury of more balanced people could keep us on emotional jag indefinitely. These emotional dry benders often led straight to the bottle. Other kinds of disturbances, jealousy, envy, self-pity, or hurt pride did the same thing. <laughs> okay. 
So it's talking on 89, second paragraph. It's talking about like various types of inventory, right? It's talking about the spot check, which is in the big book on page 84. That is your, your on the spot inventory process where you're aware of what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and then you follow the process and the results are left in principle. Um, like Jesse said, is that easy? No, it's not easy. Is it easy to fucking identify when you're in self? No, because when you run your whole life on the best of intention, you know, rebellion dogs are every step at first. It's it's hard to catch, but it's it's about practice, right? And that step is will take you to the next level if you work it properly. And if you don't work it properly, you won't get a lot of change in your life, really. Or it takes a long, calm, a long time. Or should I say it takes a long, calm, a long fucking time. Um, you know, and then it talks about the one that we take at day's end, where we review the happenings of the hours just past, where we caps, cast up a balance sheet, crediting ourselves with the things well done and chalking up debits where due. You know, this is, this is actually what they're talking about in step 11 when we retire at night. You know, and I think treatment centers really dilute the program in some aspects. And this is one aspect. The treatment centers, like, you know, for example, at my home group, we, we can get 40 or 50 people on a Monday night at my home group. And these 40 or 50 people are actually taught that step 10 is a nightly inventory that you take at the end of the night. So then they come into the rooms and they start talking about nightly inventory as a step 10. And then everybody who's new and nobody really knows what step 10 is. So then everyone thinks step 10 is a nightly inventory or they hear, I make amends quickly, promptly when I'm wrong. And those two things infiltrate and water down Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, any 12 step fellowship that uses the big book are watered down by those two things. And it actually hurts and it kills a lot of people because they're missing really what it is. So that's one type of inventory, okay? That's another. Um, annual and semi-annual house cleanings or this one. There are those occasions when alone in the company of a sponsor, a spiritual advisor, we make careful review of our progress from the last time. And those are things that you might struggle with where you're really working on, but it takes time to work on these things. And then you come together with your sponsor and you see what type of progress you've made in these areas, right? I have a sponsee that's been working on his sex conduct in a real serious way for about fucking three years. And we meet every now and then. He's been 12 stepped for a long time now. Like I 12 stepped him years ago, but we still meet and we look at this and the guy has gained phenomenal progress over the years because he's been super willing to relinquish this defect and and he he's one of my favorites because he's so willing to change and try to be a better man and not to treat women like possessions or things he he wants to treat them like human beings but sometimes with certain men and women because these subconscious behaviors are so ingrained we have a hard time treating the opposite sex like a human being will treat them as like whatever it is that our subconscious has already decided that they are you know to some women men are just to protect them and to provide them with a fucking with with life and and you know 
lead the way. And it talks about that in the step six and the 12 and 12. No, never once had we thought to be a worker among worker, a friend among friends. When two people are both secure in themselves and they walk the path together, shoulder to shoulder, that's what we're talking about. But we've been kind of, you know, conditioned to have these belief systems, whether it be the societal belief systems or the parental belief systems or the religious belief systems or the cultural belief systems. These things all affect some of those at a deep rooted level where it really drives our life, right? It's all based in the instincts like we talked about in step six when we read the first page and a half of the 12 and 12 in step four. So these types of inventories are really important too, right? Um, so like I have one where it, it has to do with amends. I've been working on doing one amend for like seven years. I haven't been able to do this one amend. And it's not because I can't go do it. It's because somewhere inside of me, I'm not able to have the right motive to do the amend. And, and I can't get the motive correct. So I don't just go do it to clean off my side of the street. I, I keep working with my sponsor over time. And eventually maybe something will change or click, or I don't know what it's going to take, but you know, this is one of those long-standing difficulties that I got to keep going and, and looking at and digging into because there's obviously some type of subconscious block with me on this one. And then what I really like is, you know, you, you work with enough people or you get to know enough people in the program and people, they get pissed off that they're analyzing all their thoughts all the time. And they're like, this is fucking bullshit. I just want to live my life. And why do I need to do inventory? Why do I need to, to do this and meet with you all the time? And like, they get actually pissed off at this, right? And this says it perfectly. Aren't these practices joy killers as well as time consumers? Like it's affecting the person's life and they're not able to get on with the business and just being self-satisfied and happy. They just want to go live, but they feel like, you know, handcuffed into these inventory processes. The emphasis on inventory is heavy only because a great many of us have never acquired the habit of accurate self-appraisal. Through the accuracy of self-appraisal, you free yourself from the bondage of self and you actually will become happier later. But it doesn't make sense. And the amount of work doing what's hard will make your life easy. And the amount of work in these moments over the beginning years of this inventory before you get a groove, it is hard. And it is a commitment. But you don't know how free it is down the road. And what's more important than what you think you know is what you don't fucking know. And as you go down this road with God, God becomes an experience. And through the inventories and relinquishing more and drawing nearer to him, he discloses himself more to you. And you have the experience of the freedom and the experience of the God dope. And then you want more of that shit, right? And it's not really like Jesse was talking about, you know, this, the scale of sobriety and being able to get drunk and then staying over here and, and staying sober and emotional balance. But over the years, what happens as you stay sober only, you close the gaps on these things so that you can live in this first quarter. And closing the gaps means going through the experiences of fucking up. But you're not really fucking up if you're really trying to grow. 
you're actually learning and growing and you're claiming spiritual progress, not perfection. And the only way to close the gaps and build the new patterns in sobriety is to stay sober and to buckle down and redouble your efforts at getting through these hard things. Because so many people take that easy road, right? And then the fuck it switch comes on and they're drunk. It's really, it's not even a fuck it switch really. It's, they don't have a choice, right? And they're drunk, right? Um, and I'll finish with this. Once this healthy practice has become grooved, it will be so interesting and profitable that the time that it takes won't be missed. And the profitability out of these inventories is your quality of life, the quality of the relationships, the peace of mind, which is a priceless gift, the comprehending the word serenity. You know, there's so many benefits through these inventory processes as you groove this in. And you guys have heard me say it many times on the study. Groove this shit into your life at a high level for the first two or three years. So then it becomes a way of life. And then the next like 20 or 30 or 40 years of your life become, you're just living this. A lot of guys will come in and do some of the work at the beginning and never groove it in. And they end up paying for that with relapses and a lot of unmanageability and a lot of dry drunkenness. But they don't really get what we're saying and i think in large part because the rooms are so diluted with bullshit that they don't even hear the fucking real message it's just just don't drink and life will get better life doesn't always just get better because you're not drinking in many respects it gets worse because the unmanageability is right between my ears so spiritual axiom on the back oh so yeah the spiritual axiom i'll touch on that i guess it is a spiritual axiom that every time I am disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. So in the step 10 process on page 84 in the big book, when we're continuing to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, and then I go to God. So I'm aware of what's happening in my life. But usually what it looks like to me is that you guys are making me feel resentful. You're making me dishonest. I'm in fear. Something external to me is actually driving that. But as you work that step 10 process in the big book over and over, over, like where I'm at today is the spiritual axiom is for sure that every time I am disturbed, the problem isn't you. It's not my job. It's not all these things. It is within me. And that's just, I've come to that conclusion now. And I'm at the point now in my recovery where I just... I just don't even care about what happens outside of me. Yes, I do to some degree. Don't get me wrong. But like, so example, I was just at a conference for, you know, addictions with the outfit that I'm working with. And there's some different viewpoints than I have. Um, and I expressed my viewpoints in a moral and kind manner coming from the heart. So it's always received well. If I came at them with these opinions or ideals in a prideful way, it probably wouldn't be received well. But at the end of the day, God is that I keep the job and God is that I don't keep the job. And the spiritual axiom is, you know, if I get disturbed because I don't like what maybe another person's viewpoint is, that's not their problem. That's my problem. And, and at some point, 
I either got to stand up for my own autonomy and what I believe in and bring that forth in a kind and loving way and be able to express that to my colleagues in a good way so that it's received well. And if it's not because they're also in their own, you know, shortcomings and viewpoints and opinions, then maybe I have to move on. But I let God decide these things. But this weekend went great, right? And, and even though I had in those moments, in those moments, I had these feelings, I kept going to prayer, I kept meditating. And it was just natural part of my life in these big conferences, I just kept going to these spots where I'm staying emotionally balanced, not getting upset. I'm in meditation, I'm in prayer, and it's like in and out, in and out, in and out all day. And I can't even believe that that's how it works now, but that's how it's working now. Anyway, that's it. Okay. So three types of inventory that we're chatting about. The spot check, which we've already outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Then you have the uh, nightly inventory. You have the annual or semi-annual house cleaning. So, you know, the nightly inventory as outlined in step 11, that's uh, a meditation. I know me and Bill go back and forth on it. We'll probably go back and forth on it before we do the uh, step 11 session. But, um, you know, even if I have sponsees that they feel the need that they want to do a nightly inventory, that's fine. It's not out of the direction. You know, your, your nightly meditation is found in step 11 is nothing short of a meditation on your step 10, right? We'll chat about that a little bit more when we get to it. The semi-annual and annual house cleaning can bring much benefit uh, because you are doing spot check inventories in each day's March. I think we might've mentioned this before. I'm going to mention it again. You know, there's a lot of information that could come out, you know, like, you know, let's say it's uh, a situation, uh, a man's trying to get his kids back, right? And he's doing inventory day in, day out, day in, day out you know, sometimes months, maybe years of litigation, and it finally comes to a conclusion, um, you know, to do a house cleaning just on that itself, once it comes to a conclusion, can bring much benefit in understanding and effectiveness on what has happened, and it won't have the ability to take the guy out, uh, you know, if the circumstances kind of against what he wants, right? Um, So much benefit in that. Uh, let me see. Um, every time we're dis- disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. If somebody hurts us and we are sore, are we in the wrong also? So much like when I go to, when, when I go through a five, the point is, is to, oh, hold on. Before I talk about that, this is fucking one thing I want to talk about. So when Bill talks about step 10 being diluted, because of the 12 and 12 and, and maybe some treatment center jargon bleeding in, one of the biggest things I hear in this chapter we will read, and this kind of coincides with, with what we've already read, is that inventory is not only done in red ink, right? Which is to say you put your assets, uh, you put your uh, assets right next to your liabilities. So I've heard a lot of people try and carry this through in the four process. Your four is a moral inventory. Uh, And that is only your liabilities, right? You don't get to counterbalance the humility given through that process with assets. 
or else the four and five will be, won't be accurate. It won't be an accurate moral inventory. When somebody comes up on their 10, um, you know, and if you want to put assets right next to your liabilities, that is possible for a counterbalance, but it depends what personality type you are. For example, mine and Bill's personality is aggressive, grandiose. So the last thing I need to do is look at my assets because assets are what runs through my mind all the time. I mean, I have the, I have the ability to justify some of the most errant nonsense and call it an asset right? Where you look at your passive, uh, they need a counterbalance. They need a counterweight when they're looking at their liabilities. They have to put assets, assets there or else they will wander morbidly around in the past. They'll pursue that melancholy activity. And eventually that does lead to the drink for the past. Most people are passive aggressive. So there's going to be times, depending on where you're at, you will have to put assets. There is going to be times you could get away with just liabilities. Myself, it's all liabilities. That's all I look at. Um, I don't need to be reminded of things that I do well because um, I'll take that fucking to the bank, right? That's the last thing I need is fucking compliments and a pat on the back because it gets pretty fucking perverse from there, you know? And that's from the outside world. That's not what I do on my own. Because like I said, I could manifest some crazy fucking shit where I've done, done something completely wrong Nobody, nobody's fault but mine, and I'll manifest that. And actually, you know, I'm nothing but the second coming of Christ. That's actually your fault. This company's going bankrupt, and I'm out of here, and now I'm out of a job, right? <laughs> um, okay. But when we talk about the spiritual axiom, we are disturbed no matter, you know, like if we're disturbed, the cause has to do with us no matter what. Um, that's true. That's true up to a certain degree. I'd say that that is probably 95 to 98% the fact. Today, for me to distinguish self from a situation is always going to be difficult. You know, Bill will talk about seeing self from self. What I can distinguish, though, is circumstance from self. If something is completely out of my control, and it disturbs me, it is much easier for me to bring God into that than if it's self and I can't see it in the first place. And then all of a sudden, you know, because I can operate on self for a little bit of time. We're talking about maybe a couple weeks. Uh, but when that comes to a head, it fucking comes to a head, right? And it is pain all around. But there are, you know, circumstances that happen completely beyond my control. This is something that kind of came to me as we were reading this and as Bill was talking about. I know we didn't cover it. I want to cover it now. I've heard of sponsors, and, and maybe Bill can attest to this. I've heard of sponsors that when we go through, when they go through the four with an individual, no matter what has happened, or five rather, when they go through an individual's four, no matter what has happened in that individual's life, they played a part. Um, and that is true to a certain degree. There's going to be a lot of things that is not the case. Anything that happens to you as you're a child, the innocence of a child prevails over that. You did not play a part. I really wanted to highlight this because it came to me, and I know for a fucking fact we didn't cover it, and I was almost kind of blown away that we didn't chat about it. 
things like sexual abuse, abuse when you're a child, growing up poor, there's going to be a lot of things here that are outside your control, right? As you get older, though, you have the ability to place yourself into certain positions given your motives, right? And so when it comes to those types of things, you want to bring those to a conclusion, the person has a better understanding, and then to be able to take on the responsibility of what's happening in their life live action. So for example, in my own, in, in, in my own situation, the fact that I was sexually abused as a child, that is not, the part I play in that is, is nothing, but what happens moving forward in my relationships with the opposite sex, maybe even how I treat the opposite sex, some issues I've had with same sex, um, that, right, this, um, how I've made people pay for that, who were casualties, almost casualties of myself, that's the part I play. So I no longer hold that over society, right? And, you know, especially, you know, with men in relationships, like it's very fucking funny, like a guy, you know, let's say it's high school or he's in grade seven or eight and some girl breaks his heart, that happens once. Then he does that to like five other women, right? As an example. And so, you know, the motives of that relationship, he's a little bit older, he's no longer a child, but he's still innocent in a lot of respects. You know, it's not so much what had happened there, although we will look at that and come to a conclusion, but a lot of it's just kids being kids. After that, the damage that he's caused, that, you know, one to five, um, that's obviously what we look at, is how we hold this over people. And so when I talk about disturbance, and even Bill mentioned something, and this was actually something that had a stump when we first went through this. I'm going to read ahead very quickly. This is the, uh, the top of 91. Uh, bottom of 90, top of 91. The consideration of long-standing difficulties had better been postponed when possible to times deliberately set apart for this purpose. So the only thing that kind of goes outside, well, I guess it's not outside. It would be the disturbance that you run into, but it'd be a little bit more of a deep dive on just what that looks like. So for both mine and, you know, myself and Bill, speaking for myself, you know, there are things that I could be disturbed about where, you know, an individual could remind me somebody of somebody from my past, or maybe something is said or something happens that reminds me of, you know, can almost take me back to childhood. Those types of disturbances are going to take a lot of work and a lot of time to get over, right? So it's not just a lot of the, it's not always just I'm irritable and haven't meditated. And so I'm just fucking on the rub with everybody. Sometimes it's a little bit more of a deeper dive. Um, but obviously that, that's not the case. That early recovery first number of years, that was maybe like 20% of the time. The rest of it was, no, I'm just restless, irritable, discontent certain things I should be doing, I'm not doing. I got a hard on for the world and they're going to get it. And that's my responsibility. My responsibility is to keep my alcoholism in check and carry the vision of God's will into all my activities, especially in this uh, chapter and in this step. What we're going to do is take a quick five minute break and then we will resume. Ah, spot check inventory taken in the midst of such disturbances can be a very great help in quieting stormy emotions. Today's spot check finds its cheap application to situations which arise in each day's march. 
The consideration of longstanding difficulties had better been postponed when possible to times deliberately set aside for that purpose. The quick inventory is aimed at our daily ups and downs, especially those where people or new events uh, throw us off balance and tempt us to make mistakes. In all these situations, we need self-restraint, honest analysis of what is involved, a willingness to admit when the fault is ours and an equal willingness to forgive when the fault is elsewhere. We need, to, we need not be discouraged when we fall into the error of our own ways for these disciplines are not easy. We shall look for progress, not for perfection. Our first objective will be the development of self-restraint. This carries a top priority rating. When we speak or ask, hate, act hastily or rashly, the ability to be fair-minded and tolerant evaporates on the spot. One unkind tirade or one willful snap judgment can ruin our relation with another person for a whole year or maybe for a whole day or maybe a whole year. Nothing pays off like restraint of tongue and pen. We must avoid quick-tempered criticism and, and furious power-driven argument. The same goes for sulking or silent scorn. These are emotional booby traps baited with pride and vengefulness. Our first job is to sidestep the trap when we are tempted by the bait. We should train ourselves to step back and think, for we could neither think nor act to good purpose until the habit of self-restraint has become automatic. So, a spot check inventory taken in the midst of such disturbances can be a very great help in quieting emotions. So the spot check inventory, when they talk about the spot check inventory, they are talking about watching for these four things. They are talking about going to the spirit or going to God, going to the power. Then, and then doing the process as well. If it's resentment or fear, I'm doing the inventory. I carry it to a God, uh, a God-centered member, and then I cap it off with a still-suffering member, having that Rolodex of guys who are maybe, you know, of uh, one foot out of sobriety, one foot into sobriety. So when they're talking about quieting, you know, stormy emotions, that's the process that they're talking about. Today's spot check finds its cheap applications in situations which arise in each day's march. The consideration of longstanding difficulties had better been postponed. The quick inventory is aimed at our daily ups and downs, especially those where people or new events uh, throw us off balance and tempt us to make mistakes. So when I'm getting like when I'm getting wrapped up either in self or circumstance, this is the process that I'm able to get back to the present and I'm able to get back into the now. The more wrapped up in self or circumstance that I get, the more damage I do and the more severe the reactions are going to be. So it's like, you know, I'm chatting with a sponsor. I'm working with a guy a couple of days ago and, uh, you know, he's looking for a deeper, um, a deeper understanding of the literature for sponsorship in his own program. And so a lot of the times when I work with these guys, a session that should take two and a half hours you know, fucking blows out to four or five hours because their their retention rate is much more high. You know, when I sponsor a, a wet alcoholic, retention rate is maybe five, ten percent at best. So I have to really pick and choose what we're talking about. With a guy like this, his retention rate is generally 35, 40 percent. So he's going to be not only more engaged in what we're talking about, 
but he does have some experience in sponsorship. And so there's going to be a lot of questions. So it could be very engaged. And, you know, what he's talking about is he's talking about, you know, this power of the universe underlying the totality of things where it is almost like a power, a current or a river that you are just tapping into the natural flow. Right. And so I could tap into the natural flow with presence in the latter steps but it is me who will fuck up the natural flow. So the more I get wrapped up, it is snow, you know, like a snowball where it gets, dude, it gets fucking worse. And it's funny though, because whenever I make these decisions based on self, it always at first seems like it's very casual. You know, it's the best idea at the moment. Everything's good. You know, I, this is why I'm doing this because fucking fuck them or what, you know, and then I make it. And then, you know, like, it's funny. It's like, you know, it's almost like you see me and, you know, hair slip back and I'm the fucking man. And you see me a couple days later or a goddamn week and I'm about to fucking blow my brains out. Right. But it never looks like that. And it's always natural disposition too. like when it says, um, you know, these disciplines are not easy. Um, we need not be discouraged when we fall into the error of our own ways for these disciplines are not easy. And it's like the error of my own ways is like my natural resting disposition, like a car idols. When, when I idle in this program, I idle in self and the defective character. You know, it's not, I've said this before. I want to say it again, because it's, it, it couldn't be more true, at least for me, as I've heard many reasons as to why I, you know, marinate in a defective character, you know, relief and something to do with my fucked up brain and, you know, this, this, that and serotonin and whatever the fuck. My, my experience is simply this, is it is most comfortable and that's why I go towards it. It's not always comfortable for me to fucking tell the truth. So I would rather lie. It's not always comfortable for me to take it on the fucking chin when I've made a mistake. Uh, so I will lie and be fucking prideful and it's your fault. You know, it's not always comfortable to be or to work these disciplines to the world of the spirit. You know, a lot of the times it's much more comfortable just to say, stay in the realm of the material, right? And be more focused on that up until a certain point. Um, okay, so... I just want to cap that off. You know, when we're talking about the flow of the current, it is me who fucks up that flow, right? It is me who could damn that river and, and completely cut off the flow, completely cut off my, um, completely cut off my equilibrium. And it never looks that way. When the decisions are being made, it never looks that way until I'm fucking quite ready to blow my brains out. Self-restraint, honest analysis of what is involved, a willingness to admit when the fault is ours, and an equal willingness to forgive when the fault is elsewhere. And so for me to make a mistake and for me to forgive myself, automatic. And it's always been that way ever since I was a child. I make a mistake, forgive myself, fucking not an issue, right? For me to admit that I've made a mistake, that's taken some time. I'd probably say 95% of the time for humility and just trying to be as honest as possible. 
we'll do that. But when it comes to forgiving you, when you make I will make a mistake, my hand to God, I will make a mistake like speeding, for example. And I've already shared this. Speeding, you know, I am uh, extremely undisciplined on the road. And the excuse would be that I have a lead foot and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I drive uh, cars that are easy to speed in, whatever. It's all bullshit. What the truth of the matter is, is I am extremely undisciplined on the road. And it is much easier and comfortable for me to drive 10 or 20 clicks over the speed limit as opposed to actually watch the needle the whole time. So, and <laughs> what was I fucking lost? Um, so in saying that, uh, speeding, what was I talking about? Speeding, speeding, undisciplined, getting smacked around. Can somebody, can somebody bring me up? Um, you said you could forgive yourself. Yes. Easily. Okay. So, so just, so now since I got my last tickets, the last month I've been driving like a geriatric to the fucking T, to the needle, right? And people speed past me. Well, people speed past me and I'm like, I'm fucking appalled now. I'm like, how fucking dare this guy? This, uh, this is a fucking hundred speed limit. He's going to buck 20. And I have, I do that all the time. I do that all the time. It is the mm, character of the alcoholic is hot and cold by turns. Self-will is extremely hot and cold. Right. And there are a lot of inconsistencies in my character and in my way of thinking naturally. And I have the ability to do that. I have the ability to speed and then the next day castrate somebody for doing the exact same thing. And these inconsistencies I carry all over the place. And this, this one piece is what turns a lot of people off who are consistent, who have a set of morals, will turn a lot of people off to me at least where they see this, like I will, you know, we'll talk about this guy who's, you know, not, uh, let's say he's not doing follow-up in his career and he doesn't look, you know, very established or very professional. And then I show up with all these justifications. I don't have a shave on, haven't showered. And, you know, I show up to the office for an hour and slip out the back door. I have the ability to do that. So it's best for myself not to castrate these people because my hand to Christ, I will do the exact same thing tomorrow. That is what I do. Okay, uh, I just, I'm going to end off on this. Um, when we talk about self-restraint, the development of self-restraint is going to be absolutely impossible if I'm not present in the first place. I have to be present. I have to be available. Only then do I get to develop this quality. Typically, what happens, I will be often a dream world. I will be on autopilot, which means that there will be, you know, maybe hours gone of the day that I have not been present. And then all of a sudden something happens where I have to come to my life. I have to be present. And in that moment, that's where I'm going to be lipping people off. In that moment, that's where it could easily be an unkind tirade. One willful snap judgment quick tempered criticism and fat and furious power driven argument. The problem with furious power driven argument is my natural disposition looks for that. That's how I get off without the dope and the booze. And so I will, I am geared to find that and to lean into that naturally. 
So for me not to lean into something I've done my whole life from a character standpoint, right, to watch for it, and now I have to not do that. I mean, it's doing that, getting fucking smacked around and smacked around, and then only then learning that it's more like out of pain. It's not meant to be, you know, the, the pats on the back are not meant to be there because it's self-interest, pure and simple, of just not dealing with the pain. Then bringing God into it, and then actually with humility, building of character. And uh, I'm going to end it on that. <clears throat> okay. Okay, so I'll start where Jesse started. In all these situations, we need self-restraint, honest analysis of what is involved, and a willingness to admit when the fault is our equal willingness to forgive when the fault is elsewhere. And that's basically what the step 10 process in the big book actually does. It allows me, when I talk to somebody immediately, or I take that space and I like have worked the program for a couple of few years, I'm able to actually see things in a different way. Because naturally, we are just trained to react. And when I react, I react out of self, out of the self-centered fear of self. But when I can take a minute and respond, I'm actually thinking of you to some degree. But when I react, I'm always thinking of me. If I can take that minute and respond, I'll be way more cognizant of you. And sometimes the only way for me to see the truth, because when I'm actually stuck in self, even sometimes when I'm trying to be objective of whatever the situation presented in front of me is, I can't see my part sometimes. And I can't see self with self, right? So I need to lay down the facts to somebody else. I need to face the facts. And sometimes facing the facts means I got to admit my faults, which is very humiliating at times. Sometimes I just want to fucking make it your fault. But the spiritual axiom tells me, no, the problem's within me. I got to quiet the disturbance and I got to get good with me. And the only way to get good with me sometimes is talking to other people, talking to God. And doing the the honest analysis right and that's always been hard for us but as we practice it like it says here don't be discouraged when we fall into error of our old way you know there's a line in the step seven of the 12 and 12 where it talks about uh it talks about be willing to work for humility is something to be desired it takes most of us a long calm a long fucking time a whole lifetime geared to self-centeredness is not going to be set in reverse at once. Rebellion dogs are every step at first. And these rebellion dogs that are at every step is those old behaviors, the old natural disposition, the old protective defense mechanisms to protect me from whatever it is. And it takes time. And a lot of people actually get discouraged and they get sick of the inventories. And they get sick of trying. But if you get sick of trying and you get sick of these inventories, you're going to get spiritually sick again and you'll pick up a drink again because you're not in emotional balance and you're not practice packing into the stream of life. You're not practicing the vision of God's will in all of the activities. You're packing into the stream of life your will. And like Jesse says, I like this analogy. And when you pack into the stream of life your will, you dam up the stream. And you will fucking pay for it. And I like how we talked about, you know, sitting there slick back and everything's fucking fine. 
because he's making his decisions with the best of intention many times, but the motive underneath drives you to days later where you want to fucking pull your hair out and fucking commit suicide and homicide. Right. And, and that's a bad place to be to say the least. <laughs> we shall look for progress, not perfection. I'm just going to clarify. We look for spiritual progress, not perfection. We're looking for the spiritual component. What am I to learn out of any of these circumstances? Even if it looks like I failed, I didn't fail. If I'm willing to grow and to learn, I'm never failing. Yeah, it's a mistake possibly. And I need to learn from it. But am I going to learn or am I just going to fucking move on and not even give it any two, two thoughts? Because if I don't give it any thought, whatever I'm resisting, whatever I'm not looking at, it's coming back. And it's going to present itself in another situation and another face and another opportunity to either fuck it up again or to try something different. And if I don't try something different or at least have the willingness to, to do that, like it says um, here, a willingness to admit. The willingness is really important in all of the stuff that we're talking about. It's probably the most important principle in everything we do is willingness. Because without willingness, we can't be honest or open-minded, right? Um, our first objective will be the development of self-restraint. It takes a top priority rating. And at first, when I started practicing self-restraint, like I talked about earlier, it was biting my tongue, writing a response on a text that I really wanted to fucking tell you what was up and fucking deleting it. And not telling you how I feel that's painful because don't you know you need to fucking hear what I got to say about whatever it is that I don't agree with with you or whatever you fucking are doing to me. I need to practice this self-restraint and it's basically it's just resistance at first. It's just kind of like a the smallest act of altruism and it's for sure is not altruism but it's a tiny act of altruism because at least I'm not being drawn into your controversy. And which brings me to this line where we just, Jesse just read, the same goes for sulking or silent scorn. These emotional booby traps baited with pride. Emotional booby traps, you can't see them, and right? And like the hardest thing to spot for alcoholics and addicts and in sponsees that I've worked with, these guys are the hardest, is the self-pity and the martyrdom and the victim mentality. Those guys fall into these booby traps like fucking no one's business. And to try to tell them that they're in, the, in these booby traps sometimes is very precarious because they're so prideful and sensitive that they can just say, fuck you, because they feel righteous in that silent scorn and self-pity. And they get that perverse pleasure out of being in there. And when you tell somebody who's full of self-pity that get the fuck out of it, they don't want to hear it. Um, so our first job, okay, these emotional booby traps are baited with pride and vengefulness. Our first job is to sidestep the traps when we are tempted by the bait. And that's like my whole life, not so much now, because I find myself mostly around people that are like trying to be the best they can. And so a lot of the people I interact with today, they're not driven by pride. But sometimes I still run into these people. But earlier in my recovery, when I was like 
more in, I'm going to say, the mid-level recovery in just the fellowship, Tradition 3 fellowship, there was often people baiting me with the pride, you know, voicing their opinion on something or political views or whatever. And I always had to like, I had to learn to step back, but I didn't learn just because I wanted to learn. I learned through, like Jesse said, the pain of fucking taking the bait and then giving my opinion back. And then I'm creating that counter force, right? Force always creates counterforce. It's an opposite and equal reaction. If somebody comes at me with pride and force, I can respond with pride and force as well. And force and pride needs to be fed energy constantly. So when they're coming at me with their self-righteousness and I return with mine, we need to feed that constantly in order for it to stay active. But if I can practice self-restraint and even possibly see that this guy is emotionally ill, spiritually sick and frequently wrong and fucking give him that grace. I actually diffuse his shit, but more I'm diffusing my own shit. And through that over time, I become an example to possibly this guy down the road, which is exactly the case for both Jesse and I and the men that we attract. A lot of these guys wanted nothing to do with us for many years. And at some point down the road, because of that, they've asked us for help, right? And that's our duty to help these guys. And so, and that's one of the beautiful things about doing this is we can help these guys who are us, because that used to be us in many respects. We can help them, you know, find that way out. Um, that's it. Okay. Disagreeable or unexpected problems are not the only ones that call for self-control. We must be quite as careful when we begin to achieve some measure of importance and material success. For no people have ever loved personal triumphs more than we have loved them. We drank of success as of a wine which could never fail to make us feel elated. When temporary good fortunes came our way, we indulged ourselves in fantasies but still greater victories over people and circumstances. Thus blinded by prideful self-confidence, we are apt to play the big shot. Of course, people turned away from us, bored or hurt. Now that we're in AA and sober, winning back the esteem of our friends and business associates, we find that we still need to exercise special vigilance as an insurance against big shotism. We can often check ourselves by remembering that today we are sober only by the grace of God and that any success we may be having is far more his success than ours. Finally, we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent emotionally ill, as well as frequently wrong. And then we approach true tolerance and see what real love of our fellows actually needs. It will, be, it will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or to, or to get hurt by people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. Such a radical change in our outlook will take time, maybe a lot of time. Not many people can truthfully assert that they love everybody. Most of us must admit that we have loved but a few, that we are quite or indifferent to the many, so long as none of us, none of them gave us trouble. And as for the remainder, well, we have disliked or hated them. Although these attitudes are common enough, we AAs must find we need something much better in order to keep our balance. We can't stand it if we hate deeply. The idea that we could be possessively loving of a few, can ignore the many, and can continue to 
fear or hate anybody has to be abandoned if only a little at a time. We could try to stop making unreasonable demands upon those we love. We could show kindness where we had shown none. With those we dislike, we could begin to practice justice and courtesy, perhaps going out of our way to understand and help them. Whenever we fail any of these people, we could promptly admit it to ourselves always and to them also when the admission would be helpful. Courtesy, kindness, justice, and love are the keynotes by which we could come into harmony with practically anybody. When in doubt, we could say, we could always pause saying, not, with, not my will, but thine be done. And we could often ask ourselves, am I doing to others as I would have them do to me today? Okay. Um, 92. Actually, yeah, 92. Oh, three, three lines down. When temporary good fortune came our way, we indulged ourselves in fantasies of still greater victories over people and circumstances. Thus blinded by prideful self-confidence, we were apt to play the big shot. Of course, people turned away from us, bored or hurt. And this is, uh, this is another defect that I really had to deal with, even in recovery, in many respects. Um, one that really comes to mind is, uh, you know, I really had big shotism and I still have it. I just played pool on the weekend with some people at this conference. And right away, I was like, you know, I made a couple really cool shots. I haven't played pool in a while. And then my fucking big shotism came out and I started being like, fucking beat that. Right? <laughs> but I learned my lesson in this and, you know, I'm pretty good at pool and I can run the you know, I can run a table fucking all night long and my pride and ego just love that shit. Right. Cause people are telling me oh, great, this and great that. And, and women want to be your partner and all these things that really fucking pump up my ego. But what happens is eventually I'm there at the pool table playing by myself because nobody <laughs> wants to play with me because my fucking ego is so big. Yeah. Right. So I've really had to tone that down. And I've had to tone it down also in regards to like what I do, like with this, the spiritual big shotism. Like I got to be really careful with that as well. You know, um, you know, Jesse helps me a lot with that. My, my ceremony and cultural practices really help keep me grounded, but big shotism can kind of come up even as a father sometimes because I've, come such a long way in becoming a better human and a better father that it kind of rears itself in a more cunning way. That's the thing with self over time. It gets more cunning and it fucks with you in a different way and to like be on guard and watch for it is it takes like more vigilance and it takes more diligence to really kind of watch it. Eh? Um, so big shotism. Yeah, it's, it's a big thing, man. But one of my favorite lines of all the literature, and I use this with my sponsees when I first work with some sponsee, I give them this, okay? It's a component out of the step four in the big book, and it's a component of the step 10. And I think it's one of the most helpful pieces that I've incorporated together out of all of the literatures that I give somebody. And it, and it says, finally, we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent emotionally ill, as well as frequently wrong. And what I like to tie it together with is all people are emotional, spiritually sick, and frequently wrong, just like who? 
just like me. And when I get my sponsees to like bring that into their daily activities, whenever they're getting twisted up with self and judging other people or other people are trying to bait them with the pride, like we just talked about, I always say all people are what? Emotionally, all spiritually sick and frequently wrong. Just like who? Just like me, just like you. And what it does over time is actually develops a lot of humanism in the other people that we're judging. Because when we can see that they're just like us, and I suffer from an emotional illness, a spiritual illness, and I'm frequently fucking wrong too. Look at my step four. I can show you years of me being wrong. So what right do I have to judge this guy? And what it does is it builds compassion over time. And then it brings me right down to the bottom. We can't stand it if we hate deeply. The idea that we can be possessively loving of a few, can ignore the many, and can continue to fear or hate anybody has to be abandoned, if only even a little at a time. And I think one of the biggest things that I see in the program is a lot of people think that they can just hate and ignore other people and just focus on the ones that they love. And I think that's a huge fucking mistake. And it doesn't actually take you to the next level. If you're just possessively loving of a few and you just focus on the ones that you love and everyone else can go fuck themselves, that's really not what we're doing here. So I, and you know, there's a lot of people that are really still resentful at other people or other groups politically or whatever. And so I really try to bring this part of the literature to them, you know, and really the person who's actually resentful or having the hate, they don't really want that, but it's so self-righteously embedded in them based on whatever the reasons are that it really hurts them on the inside and ma makes them miserably ineffective to most people. So the idea that we can be possessively loving of a few can ignore the many and continue to fear or hate anybody has to be abandoned, it says, if only a little at a time. And it talks with it's these baby steps, right? It's baby steps. There's some people that will not forgive other people. And working with me, that's not optional. You have to start praying for these other people. And not once have I ever seen it not work. If the person's willing to grow in spiritual progress, it works. And it's like 100% of the time this works. Is it slow sometimes? Yeah. But that's what it's saying, if only even a little at a time. And we ask for this forgiveness for these other people. And it doesn't have to be your forgiveness. Left to your own devices or my own devices, I don't have that power. That's why I call on creator's power. I ask because my creator, when I develop my creator, He's loving, he's kind, he's forgiving, he's compassionate. So I ask my creator for the forgiveness for these people. I don't even have to forgive them at first. But my God is all loving and forgiving. And my God can love and forgive them. And typically, whatever I'm resentful or hate, hate them for, it's not really that I hate them or forget or fucking dislike them. It's I hate what they did. And if you put any person in place of that person and they did the same thing, I would still hate what they did. I would still hate them for what they did. It's not actually the person that I hate or dislike or resent. It's what they did. 
And once I understand that all people are acting out of their own spiritual sickness, their emotional insecurities and their own defense mechanisms and their own sickness, and they do a lot of wrong things, I can start developing compassion for these people over time. Because really, I'm the one that's paying for it. When I carry this shit around in my life, I pay for it. And I need to be free of that shit. I want to live a good life. And I need to be free. And I ask people point blank, do you want to be free? It's up to you, man. Like, you know, my daughter and I got into it here a few years ago. And she was really fucking resentful. And a lot of shit had happened over the time that my addiction fucked up our family and certain things, other things happened. And she told me to fuck off. And she had never told me to fuck off before. And she was like, fucking just giving me both barrels. And I'd been in the program for a while. And then I just felt my fucking anger just fucking come right back. And I was like, holy shit, this is old me. But then I composed myself. I took a minute. But I still was pretty direct. And I looked at her and I said, until you fucking look at the shit within yourself, you will blame everybody and you will fucking live miserably. Until you accept and look within yourself at what what the problems are, you're going to blame everybody and you're in for a long fucking hard road of life. And I left it at that and then I kicked her out of the house. It wasn't my house, it was her mom's house. And her mom agreed at the time, but then let her back in and then it just continued but eventually she fucking heard those words and she went and looked at herself and fucking let that shit go because not only was she suffering she made everyone around her suffer but she's come a long way from that and done a lot of healing and done a lot of forgiving and uh you know our relationship is better than it's ever been based on this program her working her program because she works this program now she just got a new sponsor my other daughter asked me to sponsor her today. I don't know if I'm going to or not. Um, but they see the benefits of this and the ripple effect of this is far beyond wherever I will be able to see. It's an amazing journey. Um, we can try to stop making unreasonable demands upon those we love or anybody for that matter. Like putting these unreasonable demands upon people, like I said to somebody today, don't ever say yes for sure and don't ever say never. Like my daughter said, oh, I promise I'm going to come to the big book study tonight. Like she told me she was promised she was coming tonight. And I said, don't promise me. There's no sense in promising because when you promise yourself and you don't live up to it based on something happening in life where you forget, you just create shame in yourself. And if I just held her that promise, I could fucking shame her and put these unreasonable demands upon her. But we put a lot of these unreasonable demands upon ourselves. And then eventually we create shame and it's actually based in self. Don't ever say for sure and never say never. That's part of the open-mindedness, right? If she's saying yes, for sure, it's probably because she's trying to people please me. And yeah, maybe her intentions are she wants to come. But she's trying to maybe please me. And I just, I don't care though. If she shows up, great. If she doesn't, that's great too. Everything is God's will. It doesn't matter to me. If I tell a whole bunch of people, my sponsees, and they show up, great. And if they don't, they don't. I might be a little disappointed that they didn't show up because the session might have been like really in tune to what they needed tonight. 
but I can't control other people, places, and things. And I'm not going to let somebody else's behaviors take away my peace and serenity and contentment. And I just turn it over in that step three and say, fuck, okay, it's, it's not my issue. I don't need to be, you know, in the step 10, as we work the step 10, it takes us to the step 10 tradition. Um, AA has no opinion on outside issues. Hence the A name out never be drawn into public controversy. Bill Ward has no opinion on outside issues outside of my own autonomy. Hence, because of that, I'm not drawn into your controversy. I'm not baited by your trauma, pulled into your drama, because I don't have an opinion on what you fucking do. And that's okay. Do whatever you want to do. Sponsees included, right? But, uh, but yeah, that's it. Okay. When temporary good fortunes came our way, we indulged ourselves in fantasies, a still greater victory over people and circumstances. Thus blinded by prideful self-confidence, we were apt to play the big shot. So, yeah, I mean, if, if temporary good fortunes came my way, I would indulge myself, uh, you know, and if shit hit the fan, I would indulge myself regardless there's indulgence going on. Not much is fucking for sure. Um, always being blinded by unwarranted pride, right? My whole life. Um, and then, you know, like we've discussed this before, but, you know, by this process, by this power, you know, I live the life I live today. And from time to time, pride will wake up and will justify accesses, uh, will justify conduct. Um, people walking away from me bored and hurt has happened my whole life. I've never seen it. The only time I've ever been able to point that out was in other people, specifically like when I, when I was sponsoring a lot of guys in the treatment centers, you know, I'm around these guys who have lost all and they're overcompensated. They're like walking overcompensations. Only then was I able to see what exactly I, I get up to from a third party. Um, and then out of enough pain, being able to work on it, but big shot fucking nasty when it says, you know, blinded by self-confidence, right? Blinded by prideful self-confidence. That's exactly what it is. Almost like the blinders are on in tunnel vision where in, in this point, this is where I do all my toe stepping. This is where I'm stepping on everybody's toes and they retaliate seemingly without provocation, Right but we invariably find at some point in the past, we made decisions based on self. And what self is, you know, understanding big shotism today and letting it get to that point, right? Like when I talk about stepping on people's toes, like I have the ability to fucking steamroll people, you know, and they will retaliate whether or not it's, it's a blazing revulsion or it's a or, or it's a or it's a, um, a quiet snub or a cold snub that type of stuff. Regardless, I'm getting retali retaliations, and so it could get quite overwhelming where I step on everybody's toes, and it's a mixture of a blazing revulsion, seemingly without provocation, and then cold snubs, seemingly without provocation, and that is my communication with fucking people. Right. It's either over here or somebody's lipping me the fuck off or somebody's cold snubbing me.
but you bet it's going to be one of the two and you bet it's going to be all my fucking relationships all at once. That, that is, that was my communication with people. Okay. Bill talked about, you know, true tolerance. Um, a lot of people are suffering from the pains of growing up. I would say all the way from, so halfway through the page 92, finally, all the way to 93, help them. We, we could try start to stop making reasonable demands upon those we love. That is growth. That is growth from, from a present standpoint. Like all these, all these things that Bill talks about are almost like spiritual awakenings in regards to um, my fellows, right? Understanding that, understanding that I make a lot of mistakes, right? And the humility that comes with that, but also understanding that other people make a lot of mistakes. Understanding that I'm emotionally ill and a little fucked up in the head. And, and there's a good amount of people that are emotionally ill and a little fucked up in the head. Right. These are all little mini spiritual awakenings to where I come into harmony with my fellows. Right. With those we dislike, we could begin to practice justice, courtesy, perhaps going out of my way to understand and help them. So what what halts everything I've just said is being possessively loving of a few. Being ignorant to most people, as long as you don't come into my little bubble, and fuck me around then I pay no attention to you. And then fear or hating the rest. As long as people are not categorized in my mind like this, I start to understand a little bit of unconditional love and even start to practice it with the many. It will follow and be more balanced with the people that I'm uh, possessively loving of and the people that I fear or hate. My experience is if I do practice that unconditional love with the many, then it does trickle and bleed over. So the ones that I'm possessively loving, it's not so possessive anymore, right? And, and Bill talks about this in, in, in regards to relationships. I'm sure he's mentioned it already, but understanding the nature of whatever relationship this is, not putting hard and fast lines on it and not trying to choke it the fuck out, right? As in like, you know, really holding this, but I have no idea where this fucking relationship is going to go. I told Kelly that for years and she fucking hated that. Dude, <laughs> I hear you. Fucking hated that. And she actually, she gave me my chip the other month or maybe this month. And she brought that up. And uh, fuck, I had to laugh because it was true. For many years, I did that. Because um, the truth of the matter was, I didn't know the nature of the relationship. And I don't know a lot of natures of a lot of relationships I have. And as soon as I start putting hard and fast lines, especially hard and fast lines of the possessive, the, the possessive loving or hard and fast lines of the hate or fear, uh, there's no God that could be found in that. If that person's categorized that it's possessive or that, or that I'm going to hate them, uh, no God can be found in that. It's nothing but fucking self, right? So as soon as I start taking off those hard and fast lines out of, practicing um, unconditional love to the many, then God can actually bleed into these other relationships. And then they'll start to balance. The ones that I'm possessive start to be more balanced into more neutral where, yes, I can practice unconditional love, but there's not hard and fast lines. Then with the ones that I hate with the forgiveness and emotional ill, that can both all these, all these fucking relationships, more of the story, 
is can go to unconditional love instead of categorize the way I see. And with that, you want to fucking... I want to touch on something you said. When you talk about these relationships and drawing these hard and fast lines, essentially we're setting expectations on the relationship with the best of intention, right? And I also experienced exactly what Jesse experienced in a relationship where it was like, she always wanted it to be the certain way. And I was always like, well, fuck, it's going to go where it goes. And she interpreted that as I don't care. And no, it wasn't that I didn't care. And it wasn't that I wasn't in for the long haul. It was like, I don't fucking know when I really let God run my life. I don't fucking know anything. But I can tell you today, Missy, whoever that was at that time, that I'm going to be there today and I'm going to show up for you today and I'm going to give you everything I got today. And I'll do the same thing tomorrow. And wherever this is meant to go, it'll go. One thing I've learned in recovery for sure is we do not hold on to relationships just because we have emotional thread tied in there. And it gave us that value of whatever value it gave us at that time. And we'll hold on with the fucking all of our might to some of these relationships, whether they're just friendships, sponsorships, pillars, um, family, exes. And we'll hold on to these and they become serious decisions based in self because we will not let them go because they gave us some type of value at some point. But all people are going to sooner or later leave you. Period. Make the acquaintanceship with God because God will never leave you. And through the relationships going and coming back, I can tell you that the ones that were meant to come back to me, whether they were people that I wanted to get to know better but I just let it go. I've gotten an old and better because they've come back. And if they didn't, then that's fine. But you will cause yourself a whole bunch of fucking turmoil by trying to like, oh, we're going to be best friends forever. We're going to be best friends forever. Fuck that. You don't fucking know. And if you're, if you're connecting the dots of your future in these relationships, you'll probably fucking destroy it. You be present in the relationship in the moments where you're in it and you be grateful for the relationship, whatever it is of whatever style and type now, because you never fucking know. You never know. People die. People get resentful. People, 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 whatever. And the universe is working its magic, however it does. And we'll hold on to shit so fucking tight that we end up causing ourselves a lot of shit. And all relationships are typically what take people out, right? Because human beings are based in relationships. And as we build these relationships with others, we can build a relationship with nature. We build relationships with like everything that creator's given us. And at first we learn this process through human relationships and then relationships with ourselves, relationship with God, but then I can build good relationships with nature, with like grass and the trees and the animals and fucking everything becomes like respected because it is all part of God's universe, right? Like I don't throw my cigarette butts on the, on the ground ever. They always go in my pocket. I don't do the things that I used to do to the land. I don't just break branches off of trees just because I want a fucking a stick in my hand, right? You know, if I do take a branch off a tree, I try to offer tobacco and I'm using it for fucking roasting hot dogs or something, right? Because it's not mine to just take. And we also have this possessive type of thinking with everything in the world. 
but it starts changing when you when you walk down this road. Anyway, let's read the rest of this and shut it down. You want to chat on the rest of it? How long are we going to go then? No. Well, let's read it because there's not much really there to talk about. And let's finish this session off because I don't want to carry it on. Okay. If this fucking goes till 930, you're fucking going to get it. Okay. <clears throat> Do you guys hear that fucking shit? Well, we both know it's going to go to fucking 10. Doesn't ask anybody. Okay. Such a radical change. Is that where we're at? I don't know. You're fucking reading. Okay. Such a radical change. No, fuck. We already read that. Whenever we fail any of these people. Okay. When evening comes, perhaps just before going to sleep, many of us drop a balance sheet for the day. This is a good place to remember that inventory taking is not always done in red ink. It is a poor day indeed when we haven't done something right. As a matter of fact, the waking hours are usually well filled with something, um, with things that are constructive. Good intentions, good thoughts, and good acts are there for us to see. Even when we tried hard and failed, uh, we may chalk that up in one of the greatest credits of all. Under these conditions, the pains of failure are converted into assets. Out of them, we receive the stimulation we need to go forward. Someone who knew what he was talking about once remarked that pain was the touchstone of all spiritual progress. How heartingly we AAs can agree with him. For we know that pains of drinking had to come before sobriety and emotional turmoil before serenity. As we glance, glance down the debt side of the day's ledger, we should carefully examine our motives in each thought or act that appears to be wrong. Most cases, our motives won't be hard to see and understand when prideful, angry, jealous, or fearful, we acted accordingly, and that was that, period. Here we need only recognize that we act or that we did act or think badly, try to visualize how we might have done better, and resolve with God's help to carry these lessons over into tomorrow, making, of course, any amends still neglect. But in other instances, only the closest scrutiny will reveal what our true motives were. Uh, there, there are cases where our ancient enemy rationalization has stepped in and has justified conduct, which was really wrong. The temptation here is to imagine that we had good motives and reasons when we really did. And we constru constructively criticize someone who needed it when a real motive was to win a useless argument or the person being concerned, the person concerned not being present. We thought we were really helping others to understand him when in actuality our true motive was to feel superior by pulling them down. We sometimes hurt those we love because they needed to be taught a lesson when we really wanted to punish. We were depressed and complained we felt bad when in fact we were mainly asking for sympathy and attention. This odd trait of mind and emotion, this perverse wish to hide a bad motive underneath a good one, permeates human affairs from top to bottom. The subtle and elusive kind of self-righteousness can underlie the smallest act or thought. Learning daily to spot and manage correct these flaws is the essence of character building and good living. An honest regret for harms done, a genuine gratitude for blessings received, and a willingness to try for better things tomorrow will be the permanent assets we shall seek. Having so considered our day, not omitting to take due note of things well done and having searched our hearts with neither fear nor, nor favor, we can, uh, we can uh, truly thank God for the blessings we have received and sleep in good conscience. Okay, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. 
but I'm going to go to page 94. It talks about the pains of drinking had to come before sobriety and emotional turmoil before serenity. So that's really important, okay? Yes, the pains of drinking, your step one had to come before you even had a chance to get sober. And now that you're sober and working like a real program, emotion, the emotional turmoil is a fucking part of the process. And once you accept that part of this pain and and knowing that as you're going through the pain is part of the growth, then you'll be able to accept the pain a little easier. And if you can accept the actual practical application of what these steps are, a lot of that is reaching out, turning to God, going to the prayers, keeping your spiritual disciplines in alignment, and especially reaching out and talking to other alcoholics and addicts when you get twisted up. That's part of it. And once you know that and you do it and you don't, let your pride get in there and not let you do it, then you'll grow through the emotional pain and you will find the spiritual progress in, in all of these aspects of the pain, the diamond, the humility that's in the painful humility. Um, next, a couple lines down, like five lines down. Here we need only recognize that we did act or think badly. We try to visualize how we might've done better Resolve with God's help to carry these lessons over until tomorrow, making, of course, any amends we neglected. So what that's actually talking about, it's talking about that spiritual meditation in step 11. And a lot of what we're talking about here kind of is in that step 11, and that specifically is. That's what that's talking about. Um, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we selfish, dishonest, resentful, or frightened? Do we owe an apology? Am I keeping something that needs to be discussed with somebody immediately? Do I, you know, there's nine, I think eight or nine things in that when we retire at night. Like Jesse says, it's actually a meditation. You know, we can do some inventory on pen and paper if you like, and it is helpful, but it's actually a strictly a meditation. And we'll talk about that next week when we start step 11. I just want to say that that's a big deal that Bill said that. We fought about that for fucking years. I just want to say that really quickly. That's a fucking big deal for me. You just said that because we have thought about that. If you want an example of pride, just reacting. Listen, you just got it. I'll take the smack and I'll take the punch on the fucking chin. I just want that noted. If you want an example of open-mindedness, that was me. And this is recorded. So we'll play it on a fucking loop next time he tries to combat the shit. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay, in other instances, only the closest scrutiny will reveal what our true motives were. So again, as we do some honest appraisal in these things, only the utmost scrutiny will actually reveal what the true motives were, because we have layers and layers of self-justification. And I love how it says it here. There are cases where our ancient enemy, ancient enemy, rationalization, and think about that word, rational lies. We tell ourselves rational lies, which is why we need the help of the inventories. We need the help of our pillars because a lot of these rational lies are based in what we've learned and experienced and been validated from the world of the material for fucking for me for 40 some years. So it wasn't easy to turn these rational lies and see that they were actually lies, that they weren't serving me or benefiting me in any way. But I couldn't do that without my pillars and guys like this that you know, cared more about my life than my feelings. 
has stepped in and justified the conduct, which was really wrong. And really, when I act out in these behaviors that are wrong, I'm actually going against God inside me. And when I go against God inside me, love, the fundamental idea of like actually who I am, I actually create a lot of inner turmoil that my mind doesn't really understand because my mind is based all of its ideals on the world of the material, what I've seen and experienced. But there's something deeper inside me that actually guides this. Um, the sod trait down to the bottom. The sod trait of mind and emotion, this perverse wish to hide a bad motive underneath the good one permeates human affairs from top to bottom. You know, the mind and emotional manipulation of trying to like punish somebody by your words and the emotional manipulation that we fucking make them feel guilty. You know, all of these mind and emotional blackmail tactics that we use. Um, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but we're trying to wrap this up. It's too bad. I could we could probably do a podcast on some of this stuff and maybe touch on it more. Um, and I'll finish with this. Learning daily to spot and admit and correct these flaws is the essence of character building. And being willing, once you're aware of it, to fucking really try something different. This is the essence of character building. And through the building of character, our lives get really, really top shelf quality. And then we don't want to drink anymore. And through the building of character, we attract the higher water level character in other people. And kind of like, you know, not to say that I'm better than anyone else, but like I said earlier, I'm just like, well, most of the people that I interact with, they're not really working in that pride and shit. So I don't experience a lot of people baiting me with their pride. Because I don't know, I'm just like, fuck, most of my friends and the people I interact with are on a different plane and they're trying this well, this life well, and they fucking do what I'm doing. So it's really cool because I don't run into a lot of this shit, but I used to run into it. That was my life. Um, that's it. Okay. <clears throat> Just to sum up, uh, we chatted about the red ink. And so moral inventory step four is all done in red ink without exception. Uh, step 10, they're talking about a nightly inventory. Big book doesn't talk about this. Um, you know, you could add that in. You could put the assets and liabilities, but let's not get the two confused. One is meant solely for red ink only. More inventory. Step ten. You know, you could do a little bit of fucking assets to your liabilities. Pain uh, was the touchstone of all spiritual progress. Pain's drinking had to come before sobriety naturally. Emotional turmoil before serenity. So regardless, pain is a, is a necessary part of the process. You know, if you want spiritual growth, there's going to be pain in there. If you want character building, there's going to be pain in there, right? But what will happen is that you will begin to fear pain less and desire humility more than ever. Okay, I fucking, I love this piece. When prideful, angry, jealous, anxious, or fearful, we acted accordingly, and that was that. That's it. So when you are going over the day, and you fucked up the day, and you screwed up a couple of things, you know, you were resentful, and then you were fearful, and then you were anxious, you acted accordingly, and that is that period. It's fucking over now. And now what you're going to do 
Try to visualize how we might have done better and resolve with God's help to carry these lessons over into tomorrow. One of the biggest things about why you're going to review your step tens and whether or not you packed into the stream of life, you are reviewing that for the sole purpose of carrying those lessons into tomorrow. No, this isn't the process of pulling out the, the whip and giving yourself 40 lashes and feeling remorseful and, and, and getting more involved in self, right? If that's what you're doing, well, then God is nowhere to be found in that, right? The spirit's nowhere to be found in that. So you fucked up your day. You were resentful, whatever the case. You acted accordingly. That was that. Now you're going to try and carry those visions into tomorrow. Um, what I like about this piece, I'm just going to kind of say this on that, is that, you know, we chat about the step 10 uh, being the solution to the six. And right here, the closest scrutiny of what Bill goes into here in the literature is very much what we've chatted about a lot in four and a lot in six, mainly in six. I mean, what he's outlining here, just giving you a little bit of a snippet. Um, you know, was something that we covered quite uh, extensively. Thank you for tuning in to the UDR cast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. The viewpoints and the opinions expressed today were solely of the individual sharing them. If you resonated with this episode, please follow us and share this link with anyone that may benefit from it. Please visit us at billward.life to see everything that we have going on. We can recover one person, one family, one community at a time.